You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. For me, architecture, branding, developing creative enterprises, It's all about getting to the heart of what really is the clear idea and how can we build it and how can we work with people so you can really energize them, believe in themselves and they can thrive. Hello, I'm Mark Pawlowski, founder of Mex, and that was Fiona Miles, founder of Kin Branding. One of the things which came through again and again in my conversation with Fiona, who's my, my guest on today's show, was the strength of her belief in the power of education, particularly at that intersection of design and entrepreneurship. And when I say education, that's very much education with a small e. And Fiona talks about the wealth of different workshops and hubs and accelerators that she's been involved with all over the world to help spread the skills of design thinking in places where those principles can have an outsize effect on the potential for businesses and public sector organisations to, to really improve and thrive. So I'll tell you more about Fiona and, and how she came to be on the show in a moment. But first, I've got a question for you. Now, how do you listen to this podcast? And, and the reason I ask is, I guess, as with any conversation, it really helps me to be able to understand the context of it, to know you know what's working, what's not, what we might do more of in the future. So what I'd like you to do is just send me a quick email. The email address is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. And if you can, tell me a bit about how you listen to the show. I mean, do you listen on your commute? Do you download it or stream it? Do you listen as part of your work? Do you talk to people about what you've heard in the show? Really, anything that you think might give me a picture of how this podcast fits into your day. So that's designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. That's the email address. Uh, And if you take the time to write in, rest assured, I will reply to everyone I receive. So let's get back to today's chat. Uh, Now, I met Fiona for the first time this year, 2019, uh, one of our Mex Dining Club get-togethers in London. And I think, as you'll probably guess from our conversation, it was one of those meetings where I think we were both kind of scratching our heads and wondering why our paths hadn't crossed before. You know, there are a lot of shared acquaintances and areas of work. So today, Fiona runs Kin Branding, an agency that she founded back in 2005. And it specializes both in brand strategy and embedding a culture of design thinking within organizations. Uh, but she also works with Nesta, the UK Innovation Foundation, on delivering this program of creative entrepreneurship all, all over the world, internationally, with the British Council. And we talk about this quite a bit, and it strikes me, it's one of those real multiplier effect situations, whereby sharing and teaching some of the UK's strength in creative business and design thinking These programs help foster the conditions for growth in in new locations all over the place. And it was a refreshingly broad and and diverse chat. Uh, And I'm very grateful to Fiona for for sharing some of her long and accomplished 
career journey. Uh, it's also one which is literally bursting at the seams with references to different articles and people and organizations. Uh, but rest assured, if you surf on over to the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com, You'll find a long list there of all of those different links if you want to find out more about anything that we talked about. Hope you enjoy. Here we go. It seems like you wear quite a few different hats. So I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. <laughs> good, good. Well, they all come together and you still keep need to keep moving to keep fresh don't you oh absolutely yeah i mean i think having that variety in a career i mean it's something i guess i experienced myself to a degree with things like this podcast and the dinners and the consulting work yeah there's there's a unifying theme to it all obviously but it's quite nice to have those different outlets i think they all feed each other when they're working well um yes they do bring different perspectives that feed off one another and also with nesta the british council and the creative enterprise program i've had the opportunity to gain more international perspectives working with local teams across four continents to share uk knowledge on the creative economy so i've had the opportunity to work in places like nigeria chile malaysia and have you always been a traveler um not really. I think that's in recent years. I do like to work and travel at the same time because I think you get so much more depth and interest in the culture when you do a piece of work there and you travel. So I kind of like that combination. So I've been to Prague and done work with, you know, Sab Muller before, or in these cases, it's, you know, been out to Chile and then made the whole way out to Easter Island and the Atacama Desert. It's nice. Nice to have that combination. So you're not just seeing things on the surface. You're starting to understand some of the culture. You know, you understand things like um, entrepreneurs, where they get their funding from, how it's quite different in a ex-communist country to a Western country in that they may feel more it's grants and subsidies rather than doing it for themselves. So yes, it's a nice way to see the world. Yeah, I mean, you must see a huge variety there. But I've got to admit, I'm not particularly familiar with Nesta as an organisation or or with this programme. So I'd be very curious to learn about how it actually came about in the first place. Well, Nesta is the UK's innovation agency, and it was set up out of lottery funding. So it is, you know, an innovation agency for the UK. This programme was, is for the British Council. So the British Council 10 years ago, got nested to develop this program then we've recently reinvented it and it's all to do with goodwill and understanding across the world Um, and it's very relevant in days of brexit because i think jack straw in the ft was talking about foreign policy and how we need organizations like the british council the world service to um, be building this international relationship so that we have something to build from so the term which springs to mind when you describe that and it's a term i'm not particularly fond of myself but you hear a lot in relation to these things is soft power yes does this program relate to that in any way it's completely it's completely about soft power and the british council is all about soft power and it came about after the war really that we mustn't go back we must have these friendly friendly knowledge and understanding between nations so it's got whole big series of programs. I mean, I 
I'm unusual in that I've been working with British Council as a client for about five or six years now. So I've both worked centrally doing the whole narrative for education society. I've done a blockbuster product for them, Aptis. So I've worked with them centrally and also out in the field delivering these programmes. So it's nice to be able to do the combination of the both. Yeah, so I guess you get to know a bit about their their central mission and, and why they do these kind of things. Because, you know, while I say that term soft power is something, I guess, which makes me a, a little bit in, uncomfortable the way it describes the, the, the ambitions of a mission like that, I think are fantastic. And, and these are the things which often, those are the most positive relationships that thrive between countries and people of different cultures when you can have that exchange of education and ideas going across borders. And um, and is that what attracted you to getting involved with the British Council in the first place? How did that come around? Well, I started to do projects with them and then just got more and more involved. And it comes, I mean, the British Council is is a huge global brand and it's more highly regarded outside the UK than inside the UK. You know, I go through passport control and they say, why are you here? I say British Council workshop and they just, you know, push me through immediately. Um, you know, it's got great respect because it, um, you know, when things go wrong in a country, the British Council has kept a presence there. Um, in lots of countries like Afghanistan, people will talk about the fact, well, there was always um, a British Council library I could go to. I've, you know, they do wonderful programmes in society and things like hooking up the top lawyers around the world. So when things go really, really pear shape. You still have somebody to talk to. They're a bit like the Samaritans in the sense that they will be a critical friend, but they're always um, open to having a conversation with you. There was a wonderful story about in the Suez Canal crisis, the British ambassador packed up the British Council packed up and the police came with, came along and said, no, no, not you to the British Council. You can stay. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, it must be a reputation, I guess, which is built up for a reason, you know, if you're delivering those kind of services and, and support. So, so the British Council, I guess, was the one which had the original mission to do this. But then how did the relationship with, with Nestor evolve? Were they going to Nestor to uh, help develop the, the structure of the programme to deliver on that mission? The British Council works in partnership with a whole series of organisations and Nesta is an innovative agency. So it's one of the partners that um, the British Council works with. I mean, it just happens that independently I was working with both organisations. So when you're on the ground in somewhere like Chile or one of these other far-flung places you've had the opportunity to travel to, what does a typical schedule look like for you? What are you out there delivering on behalf of Nesta and the British Council? Well, it's um, the Creative Enterprise Programme because the UK is ahead on developing its creative economy. So it's sharing that knowledge globally. So it's out there to run a um, three-day workshop and there's two different programmes. One is the Creative Enterprise Programme and the other is a Creative Health Programme. So it's either working with a whole range of about 25 creative enterprises in country or about 25 creative hubs. So it's all about how can you work with them to develop their business plan over three days. And in that three days, how far do you feel you're able to get with those kind of organisations? It works both in 
an emotional and a functional way. So what participants will talk about is the fact that they develop belief in themselves. So, you know, it's belief in themselves that they can take on bigger challenges, that they can grow, that it's working with a cohort of like-minded people. And it's also going through all aspects of a business canvas plan. So at the end of the day, they end up with a summary of their business and it's a starting point for them to continue and develop. So when you describe it as the the, the creative economy and that some of these countries and these, these organisations are looking to the UK's progress in that area of, of the creative economy, do you find that interpretation of that varies from country to country does that sometimes lean more heavily on this is a design-led thing versus this is a creative entrepreneurship-led thing you know is there a variance of that across countries yes there is a complete variance of that across countries and also this is quite a broad church in terms of who 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 will we will define as creative enterprises we get a wide range of people from digital businesses to theatre businesses to entrepreneurs setting up businesses to lawyers supporting creative businesses. So it really goes across the whole spectrum. Um, But what's also interesting is that we're working at both a country and a local level. So you're getting different countries taking on different approaches to their creative economy. I was in Mexico in February running a workshop with our whole Creative Connect program. And that was very interesting because it kicked off with a whole conference and then we went into the creative program and they've taken the policy that they want the creative enterprises to grow across the whole country, not just to be centred in Mexico City. So they had representatives from every single region across Mexico coming to this program, which was really interesting. In Chile, Chile is an economic success story from South America, but it's been founded very much on mining. So there it was working with Chile's innovation agency, who wants to develop much more of the creative economy across Chile. Um, I've been working in Africa. Um, I did a um, mentoring call with West African Associates last week. 18 months ago, I went out to Nigeria and ran the programme with Creative Hubs in Nigeria. And I also trained local associates to be able to run the programme in Nigeria. I went out to Ghana last September to support them. And then that's a whole programme that's going to be scaled across West Africa. Because in somewhere like Africa... It's a different mentality in the sense that the population in Africa is such that corporates can't provide enough jobs for the population. So people need to be able to set up enterprises enterprises to be able to have the growth and for people to provide for themselves. So you have organisations like Roar Nigeria on the programme who are part of the University of Nigeria And some of their students are setting up a creative enterprise in order to get work experience, in order to then get a mainstream job. So creative enterprises are a whole way that people can take action and build their own future rather than just trying to get a job. Well, it sounds like a wonderfully diverse range of of organisations to be working with. But I guess at the same time, you also are running your own 
branding agency back in the UK. And I'm wondering, have there been particular of those engagements that you're doing abroad with Nesta, which resonate back to the work that you do day to day in your, your branding agency as well? Do you find that there is, uh, that you're able to derive something from what you're learning in those places that you're then able to apply back into your, your other work or vice versa? Well, what you're getting is, um, you know, you're seeing how innovation is emerging in the world. I also work with Central Research Laboratory as a mentor, which is mentoring entrepreneurs. And I'm also working centrally with the British Council on strategy projects. So it's also seen at a top level of the British Council or with Nesta, what um, innovation is emerging from the world. It's like you asked where you get inspiration from. So you get inspiration from what people are out doing in the world and what's happening and emerging in different countries. Well, it's amazing, you know, I guess the commonalities that you can come across in those things. I mean, just from what you've described so far, where you were talking there about Mexico and that challenge of, if you like, making sure that all of the progress and innovation around this area is not centred in one particular capital city. That sounds like actually a pretty familiar challenge from the UK as well, from what I know of working with organisations like Innovate UK. I know that's something which has been quite high up their agenda to make sure that that sort of natural gravity well effect that you get when you have an industry which is quite well established already in a particular city like London in the case of the UK, that actually it's quite difficult to ensure that balance and and to make sure that actually you're encouraging growth across the whole geography of the country rather than just in one place. It sounds like there's already a fair amount of commonality between those, those things, even when you're as far afield as someone like Mexico. Yes, and I was at Nesta's first inaugural creative enterprise, creative economy conference, and that was one of the subject matters. And it was in Bristol, which is one of the UK's creative hubs. So it is great that we're setting up more creative hubs around the UK. And of course, in my branding work, I've been doing work with um, DKNA on developing HS2. HS2, both in terms of design thinking and developing their project brand. And, you know, HS2 is about can we bring more in the reach of all and, you know, so bring the country closer together, which is one of the themes that came up in Chile as well, in that it's so dispersed geographically. How can we create more opportunities across the country? Do you think it helps when there's... I guess, an earlier opportunity to get that kind of thinking into the way a country supports its creative industries in the sense that, you know, I guess in the UK, while there are a number of organisations now at government level, at national level, which do support those kind of things, uh, there was already a pretty well-established set of industries that had developed. But I'm wondering if in countries where those industries are at an earlier stage of development, by getting in there early and getting that kind of thinking in, you're able to to, to accelerate, you know, to allow countries to, to leapfrog the kind of, uh, not necessarily mistakes, but I guess some of the challenges which countries where those things develop more more naturally and perhaps in a slightly more haphazard way um, have have had to, to, to overcome. Um, yes, but there's certain certainly growing p- pains if a country's economy has been based on particular types of industries, it's quite a shift in terms of, you know, what kind of businesses, what kind of support they need, what kind of infrastructure, you know, even reaching them and encouraging them. It is quite a different mindset and different economic policy can be needed. Could, could we go 
back a bit, Fiona, because I'm I'm intrigued. Um, when you were training, when you were going through university, did you imagine ending up in a role like this? Not really. Um, but then I guess what I have always loved is, I, you know, I, I started out in architecture. I did the Bartlett. So what I've always loved is the concept and ideas behind things. And branding is, and is always about what's the concept and the idea, working with a creative enterprise in order to do their business plan. You know, one of the feedbacks from a workshop in Ukraine was I was able to ask the right questions in order that for them to clarify their business idea. So for me, architecture, branding, developing creative enterprises is all about getting to the heart of what really is the clear idea and how can we build it and how can we work with people so you can really energize them, believe in themselves and they can thrive. So I see all of those themes coming through. Realise that you trained originally as an architect. Um, yes, Bartlett the whole way through. So I was at the Bartlett. Um, I then went to the States in the 90s and I worked within Dublin Group, who was founded by Jerry Dublin, who was one of the founders of Design Thinking. And um, they supported designers in their space and they inspired me to go and do an MBA. And so there's a real thread coming through there from design thinking. Then after the MBA, I thought about, well, how can I put architecture and design together? So I went and did branding with Wolf Olin's Elmwood. Then I worked with the Design Council um, as a consultant for over 10 years. Then I set up my own boutique business and then increasingly work also with enterprises. Uh, so it's almost like a, a microcosm of how design thinking itself emerged, you know, that idea of coming from some of the sort of design strictures of something like architecture and then combining that with the business experience through an MBA and, and bringing those strands of thought together. You know, that's a lot of the origin story, I suppose, of, of design thinking as a, a practice that's now accepted in the workplace. Yes, because, you know, it was people like Jay Dublin thinking about, well, the whole process of design as a verb in terms of how you clarify, challenge, um, get closer to the user, what advantages that would have to business and how it opens up all those processes and tools of design to a wider range of people. And that's been taken much more through organisations. In the, the work that you've been doing across these different organisations that you work with, I'm guessing you've had a chance to work with people from a, a wide range of different backgrounds. And it, it makes me curious about which of those possibly has the most sort of natural inclination towards a well-rounded design thinking approach, or, or does that come down more to the individual? Because I just know from speaking with different people on this podcast, for instance, that there are quite a few people who, even if they are now working in what might be considered digital design, either had an early interest in architecture uh, or themselves trained formally as architects as, as, as you did yourself. And it, it makes me wonder whether or not that that early interest in architecture perhaps is something which is a, a sign of a, an inclination towards that that approach to design thinking. Well, I, I think the whole process of designing as, as an architect is that you're thinking through how somebody experiences a space. 
So you're always walking through a space, which is why I think a lot of, I see a lot of architects, you know, young architects now going into more um, service design because I think there's a natural flow towards that. In terms of why do people get interested in design thinking and who, who we see in the design thinking courses coming through, I think that there's certain sectors have got big challenges which design thinking is helping to address. So, for example, with the Design Council, there's been a whole big programme of public sector by design because how can we... There's huge challenges in healthcare and we can't solve them all by ourselves. And we need the user to have capabilities, you know, it's like people powered health. So how can we redesign our public services so that we've got better services for less and we engage both the staff and patients and the users to be able to do more? You know, you've had a lot of growth within banks and that's been to do with the whole issue of trust in banks and banks finding needing a way to connect with and re-establish relationships with customers and being able to do financial services in a user-centric way. And we've, we've got lots of designers doing new digital services and we've got traditional industries wanting to be, you know, wanting to address the challenge to be able to use these digital technologies. So I think coming back to your early question, there's a certain aptitude, there's a certain training and there's certain challenges that design thinking really can help to address. And I think the best way of starting to get to understand design thinking is to experience it. You know, all the design sprints are a brilliant way for people to experience it because if you're working on a challenge or a problem, you see the light bulbs going off and people start to get it rather than being lectured on it. As you go through this process of, of doing workshops around the world and having had this experience yourself of coming through various different parts of the education system to, to get where you are, does it make you think it's all about what the ideal would be if you if you looked back with hindsight I guess knowing now what you do about how you've put that training into practice about how we can make that process of education more effective for the next generation of students well I've also I guess many hats I've also been um, doing lecturing both with Design London and Imperial College and University of Arts London so you know there is huge challenges within the education system. I guess I guess one of the things that's benefited me is that in innovation, if you do a couple of different subject fields, it helps you in terms of innovative thinking because it helps you by able being able to approach things in different ways rather than approaching it in one way. You know, so that kind of diversity of thinking helps from doing something like a business degree and, uh, you know, an architectural degree, that kind of diversity helps your thinking. Um, in terms of um, education, I guess it's the social mobility that is worrying because doing a university education is still beneficial, but it's not as beneficial as it used to be. And it's not just the education, it's people contexts, their networks, which which is about their ability to be able to do something with that education. For instance, you know, with the British Council, it's about 
people being able to speak better English gives them opportunities. People having an education gives them opportunities, but you need to be able to use your education to be able to maximise its benefits. Absolutely. And I wonder sometimes whether yeah, that comes down as well to the sense of possibility that people are given during that education. I mean, one of the areas that I've been involved with in, in different ways is giving people who have come through, uh, I guess, broadly a design education of some kind, a sense that their options extend beyond going into working in an agency of some kind or an in-house design department of some kind, and that actually entrepreneurship of some form is a valid option even quite soon out of their university course, which I think is something that has happened for a a small number uh, naturally and organically, but perhaps is something which could benefit more if there was the sense that that was an opportunity and that the support was there. I mean, it makes you mentioned working with the Central Research Laboratory, which I, I know is doing some work in that area. In fact, I had the chance to talk to Matt Hunter uh, of the Central Research Laboratory in early one of these podcasts. And, you know, I wonder if you've had any experience with those kind of programs and, and where you see them being most effective in giving people who've come from that design background the sense that actually building a business of their own is something which is a, a valid outcome. Yes, I think we've could do much more in schools to get people to understand how to run a business, show them more people doing it. And yes, I'm working with Matt Hunter at Central Research Laboratory. And that's also, you know, it's physically co-located near Brunel University. And I think Brunel University, you know, is doing a fantastic job because we're getting people coming through in the accelerator programs from the university. Um, you know, I've done some mentoring, a workshop there. And, you know, I'm very proud of some of the students coming through. So, for example, Lauren Bell, with Cozy Care um, a couple of weeks ago, won Lord Mayor's Entrepreneur of the Year in her class. You know, she's come out of Brunel University. She's got a wonderful product idea, which is like a starfish to address itchy skin. So it's developing a product that um, parents can give a child with something like eczema so you can rub it and it reduces itching. And that whole program is coming through and she never imagined in her 20s she would be winning Entrepreneur of the Year and would be doing this kind of business. So yes, it's it's wonderful that if more of the universities can have of these programs and show people what other people are doing because with people like Lorraine or people of seen in other countries, you know, you're hitting a lot of buttons because if you're getting young women, you're getting subject areas they're passionate about. They're coming through as technical and digital leaders. That's showcasing the way for others. Absolutely. Those kind of role models, I think, are essential. And and having some sort of system in place which celebrates those role models too, so that as those success stories start to mount up, they get publicised, people become aware of them. Yeah, it's all part of that process, I guess, of giving people that sense of possibility. Of course, you need the structures in place, you need the programmes in place, but just putting that idea, that spark in people's minds that actually that could be me, I think is is one of the essential things to start that ball rolling. Yes. For example, I worked with Mariana Palmer, founder of Punty in Mexico City, and she's doing a wonderful digital business because she's passionate about dancing and ballet. But if young girls and boys don't get on their points right, it's 
can be very painful and throughout a dancer's life. If you don't get it right, you know, it can create a lot of physiological problems. So she's got this very simple digital tool that is a digital shoe so that when you do your point in the right way, the light goes off so you can tell and get instant feedback as to how you can get on to points quicker, less painfully and less hurt for yourself. So I think that's a great example of somebody doing a digital business around something they're passionate around and solving problems. How close were you to the the, the development of that um, product on the the, the dance form? Um, Was that something you had the chance to see close up? Um, and some of the challenges that they encountered there? In the case of Marianne, that was with the Creative Enterprise Programme in Mexico. But I am seeing more of these challenges coming through with Central Research Laboratory and Mount Hunter, as you described. And you're seeing similar businesses emerging across the world. So I'm seeing some similar businesses in Central Research Laboratory. So it's interesting to see those challenges and how doing hardware can be you know, much more challenging than software. But the more you do that, you see things like it can be easier to on crowdfunding. People can prefer to fund a hardware physical thing than always being digital. Yes. And I suppose perhaps having that I guess, association with something like the Central Research Laboratory as they start to build up a portfolio of success stories that have come through that program, particularly when you think about uh, some of the difficulties that crowdfunding campaigns have encountered in, in delivering finished products, maybe in the minds of those who are funding those kind of things, as they see that it is an organisation that is coming through a programme like the Central Research Laboratory, and they're able to kind of start to associate that with being a certain quality mark, maybe it creates a snowball effect, which means people have more confidence in, in backing those kind of products. Yes. And if you see things coming through from the University of Brunel through an accelerator and there's all that support and is there, you know, there's a whole depth of research and science and thinking behind it, I think that gives people confidence too. And there's so many exciting businesses you can do around it. And there's so much potential. You know, I think people will naturally get excited around some of these ideas. I'm interested as well in um, the creation of your own business, Kin Branding. Uh, Now, it sounds like that's something which happened at a, a later stage in your career than some of the examples of entrepreneurship that we've been talking about here. But anytime you found a business, there's got to be some consideration and, and challenges which go into that. What was the turning point for you which convinced you that that was the, the right moment to, to start building up your own design consultancy? I guess um, I started getting opportunities And so I wanted to realise these opportunities. So you get to a certain stage and you realise you can do it for yourself. And it's the whole opportunity to put both brand strategy and design thinking together and to take this further into organisations. So I do see a whole opportunity field there. So that's quite a a nuanced position and and mission for the company or that intersection between brand strategy and and design thinking. How do those conversations with clients normally begin for you? You Do you find that there is a specific demand for that particular 
bit of insight and, and that particular capability that you have? Or do you often find that you're coming at it from a slightly different direction and it, it then becomes apparent that that is the, the piece of the puzzle that those organisations need? Well, you know, conversations start from all sorts of ways. And, you know, it's often relationship building and recommendation. And so, you know, it's coming out of experience in design thinking from places like the Design Council that you can naturally do these tools with clients. So they do want this kind of more human-centred design thinking approach coming through. We often on this podcast, I guess, naturally gravitate towards talking about the the positive aspects of uh, the different bits of of work that that people do. But I'm also always curious about the challenges that have been faced along the way. I mean, have you had any moments since you founded Kin when you questioned whether or not it was the right thing to have done? It's in life, you always have those questions. And it's good to go through those periods of questions because it reaffirms um you know what you're doing or not doing so it is it is you do have ups and downs and so those challenges are times to clarify where do you go to next otherwise you can you can drift it's very true and i think particularly when it's a small business and and your own business i mean i'm in a similar position with what i do with with mex and have been doing now for an extended period of well nigh on 20 years and yeah, you do have those moments, I think, where you look at it and say, well, where is this going? Or are we still delivering on the original promise? Or has the original promise needed to uh, to evolve? Um, and I suppose, you know, you need those times to, to really make sure that you continue going in the right direction and continue providing something useful to the industry. Yes. And that's why when you say I wear many hats, it's about getting out there, seeing what's happening in the world, doing collaborations with other people so that you're moving on, seeing what's at, what's next. You're not just staying within your own world. You're seeing what's happening out there and what can you bring to the world and what's new and emerging. One of the things I'm always fascinated about and uh, often ask people on this show is, particularly once you've reached a certain stage within your own career, you know, I've had the chance to speak to people on this show who are quite early on in their careers or early on in the founding of their business and those who are further down the line with it. And I think particularly the further down the line you get, I'm always interested in how you keep the inspiration fresh and and whether or not you find ways to balance your time so that you're able to continue your own learning, development, growth, whatever you want to to call it, uh, by getting new sources of inspiration. Is that something that you feel you still have the time to do despite these many hats that you wear? I think you have to constantly go out there. I mean, I go to so many different conferences to see what's happening. You have to read widely, but then a lot of the inspiration and insight finally comes from looking really closely at your customer and your user and your pain points and seeing what's actually happening and then those pain points can be a source of inspiration but yes I remember um, Future Laboratory talking about marketeers and saying they should be saying I can't remember the exact statistic but saying you know they should only be spending about 20 or 30 percent by their desk they need to get out there if they're retail they need to get out there walk down the high street if you're in entrepreneurship you need to go get out and chat to entrepreneurs see what's happening in the world there's so many of sources of inspiration out there and you can't stand still. Uh, it's such a, a tricky challenge that I think I think particularly as 
agency businesses start to scale, you know, there's always that trade-off between we need to deliver the thing for the client versus we need to continue to invest in our own growth as a, as a business, as an organization capable of producing interesting things for the client and how you strike that balance. And I guess how you maintain that discipline around having enough time to keep those sources of inspiration fresh. You know, I think that that's a challenge a lot of businesses go through, especially as they start to grow beyond the sort of one to five people through to, you know, five to 20 and then on to, to larger organizations. Um, yes, but I think it's a mindset of being curious. You know, people tell me that they go abroad and they never get a chance to see anything. Whereas I think, think you can always get up early in the morning and have a walk along a street. Terry Smith, the fun smiths, you know, very, very successful. He says, just read, 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 read everything you can. So I think it's a mindset of being curious. And there's always a downtime in between things where you can have a conversation with people or look over the parapet. So of all the different places that you've had the chance to visit with your work with Nestor and the, the British Council, is there any one particular one that you wish you had more time to do exactly that or where you'd like to go back and spend some time investigating the things that piqued your curiosity in the time that you were there? In a way, I'm answering the reverse of your question because I'm working and mentoring associates in West Africa and they're actually going to places that the Foreign Office wouldn't advise me to go to. So there, I, I think it's amazing that we've got these local associates in the grounds that are going to go to very difficult parts of Nigeria, um, Ghana, Sierra Leone, places that we wouldn't be advised to and do this work. And some of the um, help leaders that I've met in, from places like Senegal are amazing. You know, I met one hub leader, Siri, and he said he's setting up a hub in Senegal to work with social enterprises to bring hope to the region that you don't have to go and get a boat to Europe because you can set up a social enterprise and you can set up your own business in Senegal. Startup Kano in Kano in Nigeria is amazing because that's a very difficult area of Nigeria. And he set up that hub so that there is hope within that region. Um, Techher is another amazing one, which is all about within Nigeria. Can we have hubs to teach women more about technology? So, you know, I am completely inspired by these local associates that are scaling, supporting all of these creative enterprises in very difficult areas in the world. How amazing. I mean, to think about the the power and the potential that by getting the ideas in at the right time in those places, that that may go on to have such an outsized influence on what it means to people in those parts of the world and, and I guess how those seeds might grow over time. Is that yes. something which you're able to follow up on You know, as that develops? Is, is there a structure in place to sort of see where that kind of training intuition goes? Yes, we're getting better at measurement. So we're putting together a whole measurement system, but it's not just about quantitative, it's qualitative. What are the stories emerging when people have had this training? 
what support did they need it for the next steps? What peer support? And how can, I mean, there's a whole programme of how we can scale this kind of activity through West Africa and hubs are a way of doing it. And so we also have local associates who are trained and having quarterly calls with in terms of what's happening, what support they need, what's doing, how can we continue to upskill them and support them. Yeah, I think that structure you're describing of providing training to local associates who then go on to spread the word seems like a a really smart way of using resources. It it makes me think of a recent episode of the podcast actually speaking with Lydia Oshlansky, who's the design lead for growth at Spotify. And I think the phrase she used was that local partners are oxygen for design-led initiatives, that you need that real understanding of the local conditions and the local people on the ground married with some of the the structures and the training which can go behind design thinking yeah that's when you get that real multiplier effect of those two things coming together and it then going on to have a, a big effect absolutely and this is a global program so there's more we can do both across the local associates and the local entrepreneurs so yes there's a lot more can be done with it so i mean we've I guess got to hear a little bit about the fascinating um, and quite winding path that you have had through your career so far, Fiona. But I'm very interested to know whether or not there's anything that you haven't yet had the chance to work on that you might like to future in your career Um a product, uh, another type of business, uh, another kind of role that you've not yet had the chance to apply your talents to? <laughs> That's a big question, isn't it? Well, I, I just see this whole opportunity space between branding, design thinking and service design at the minute, which I'm working on, because at the moment, you know, it's almost it can be separate projects, separate clients. And I can see a whole opportunity space that I'm working on because I see a huge potential there. You know, I'd say people like Smythe Dward Lambert came out of Wolf Olin's maybe, I don't know, 20 years ago. And they tried to affect all this change in organisations, but they didn't have all the tools at the right time. I think, you know, it's at a moment now where design thinking is getting taken up so much more by organisations. And there's so much opportunity to get brand design thinking and service design further within organisations. And if you think about architecture, you know, they always say that the majority of architecture isn't done by architects. It's done by developers and other people. But when you bring an architect to it, it becomes something much more special. I'd say, you know, a lot of services haven't been designed by design thinkers or service designers. Services existed before the field of service design in a way. So just think of what potential design thinking can be done to you know, take all of these things to the next level. Is there an ideal project or an ideal industry where you'd like to apply that approach when you think about a sort of a dream client that you could land for something like your kin branding business? You know, is there a particular industry? You mentioned financial services earlier or, or the public sector, but as you say, there are so many industries now which are starting to wake up to the value of design thinking. I'm wondering if there's one in particular that you're really hoping you'll get the opportunity to work in. Um, well, I'd, you know, I'd love to do more international development work. And interestingly, I did um, a design sp- thinking sprint last week for GIZ, which is Germany's International Development 
agency, which is similar like DFID. And it was really fascinating. I was working with 35 leaders of their CAS, that's their Central Administrative Services Provision from across Ukraine. Um, these centres have been set up to deliver all services like childbirth registration, passports, building control, registering businesses. And so it was a five-day sprint. And as part of this, we went to two of these CAS with the participants to do user-centred ethnographic research to look at the challenge of how can we improve customer services there. And, you know, the participants hadn't done something like this before, and we got to so many user insights and opportunities on what design can do to simplify the services, communicate them better, and actually coming back to MEX, you know, better digital experiences and act back to financial services, better payment interfaces. And, you know, the participants got great insights to take back to their class to implement. So it felt very worthwhile. And, you know, it's a national project. So it comes back to brands and thinking about, we were thinking about the emotions during the experience and also what kind of national services values are right for Ukraine. So, yes, I'd love to do more international development projects like this and take it further to implementation. And also, if I can add another couple, you know, I'd like to do more work on the big challenges of our time. I've been working with emissions analytics to develop their equi index to make it easier for consumers to understand car emissions. So more social challenges and more in the field where design thinking and branding can come together to go further in organisations to make a difference, such as co-creating with consumers, especially in fields like healthcare, where, as you know, there are increasing chronic needs and shortages, and we need to engage with users and help people with the capacity to contribute. And then, you know, another big area is that, you know, we need to get the economy growing through SMEs and entrepreneurs. And I'd like to work more with young entrepreneurs and dragons to get people developing ideas with real potential for growth. You know, I think too many entrepreneurs can stick with their first idea and can get business support for that. And I'd like to see more people seeing it as their first business and moving on to better ideas with more potential. And I'd like to see more structure for that. And yes, of course, I'd like to work with more medium-sized growth businesses who are going to drive the growth and opportunities our country needs. Well, it sounds like no shortage of challenges for the, the future. And I mean, fascinating to see now the the scale of the ambition at which design thinking is being applied to, to solve these kind of problems. But look, Fiona, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show and, and share all of this with, with me and, and with the, the MEX community. And I do very much hope you'll stay in touch and keep us posted on how it's all going for you. Yes, Mark, thank you very much for this opportunity. It's been a pleasure. think that one has to be something of a record for the sheer number of references and links to follow up on. So what I've done is put up a long list of all of the things that Fiona and I talked about into the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com. So if you head over there to the podcast section, uh, you'll find easy links to anything that you might want to go off and, and find out more about. Now, one thing before we finish up, uh, if you enjoyed the show, Please have a think about 
who else you might know who you think might like to have a listen. And the best way to spread the word uh, is just send them the link to mobileuserexperience.com where they can hear this one, obviously, and, and the 60 other episodes that we've now got in the archive. Uh, or if you're feeling especially warm and fuzzy about the Mech's podcast, uh, do please head on over to iTunes uh, and do a search for Mech's Design Talk to, to find the listing for the show um, and give us a five-star rating and a review. Uh, it's a great way to bump it up the list in, in iTunes uh, and get the podcast in front of more listeners. Now, I'll be back soon with the next episode, which is going to be a foray into the world of automotive uh, with expert car design strategist Sam Livingston. But that's it for today. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.